Thank you for that, Scott. All right, thank you, praise team. Beautiful, beautiful songs and worship today. Hey, we're glad to have you here. Good to be in God's house today. Um, we could worship together and come into His Word. Now, I want you to take your Bibles to Mark chapter 15 today. I've got a message today that I want to share with you. Uh, just the weight of it is, is a heavy thought here because it's really coming to the climax of the book of Mark. And uh, it is Jesus on the cross, crucified. And so as we come to this portion of Scripture, I've looked at several ways to kind of present it. And um, this is what I've settled upon. I've entitled the message, Eyesight or Insight? Eyesight or Insight? And uh, I want you to take your Bibles. Mark 15, I'm going to read verses 33 to 39. 33 to 39. So stand with me now as we read God's Word. All right, verse 33. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Look, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus, uttering a loud cry, breathed his last. And the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was God's son. You may be seated. All right, I think what I'll do is I didn't get a chance to do that illustration last week. Some of you have been bugging me all week, said you didn't get your money's worth at the sermon last week. So I'm going to take a minute just to kind of summarize. This will take me about 15 minutes to set up, so don't worry. Uh, just use it. We'll go a little longer today. Uh, I wanted to uh, just, this is an illustration I want to use to illustrate the book of Mark and what really is happening in the text. And so I'll do the best I can with this, but... It seems like um, when you think about the book of Mark and you think about Jesus Christ, his whole goal and focus was to... His whole goal and focus was to... Uh, I could have just walked right off the stage. I'd have been done. But uh, his goal, whole goal and focus was to really sacrifice himself in a way that he gave himself completely to the Father's will. And so when you think about that in the scriptures and you look at our lives, we really are being asked to join the journey with him. And so I'm coming to the last section of the book of Mark, and the series is closing out. And this, this is the way I wanted to illustrate it for you, because these two ladders, one will represent, let's have this ladder represent the world, and this ladder will represent a walk with God. One of the things that Jesus Christ wanted to do with his life is he wanted to make sure he always pleased God the Father, and he always was going in that direction. Over here's the world. The world never interested him. There was nothing that literally he would look at that and say, that's what I want. He just kept focused, and he just kept trying to see the beauty of following his Father. And that's literally what he did with his life. It's a, it's a beautiful picture, and so it's really the whole focus of joining that journey. But the struggle we have sometimes in our Christian walk is we have this struggle of the world over here, and we have to deal with that in a real kind of way. And so I just want to make sure I don't hurt myself. Um, 
what we do sometimes is we get a foot on the world or a foot on God, let's say, in our, in our walk with Him, but we also get a foot on the world. And so the problem we get ourselves into is we try to have a little more of God and a little more of the world. And so we get to a point where, I'm just thinking I'll go that far. <laughs> this is good enough. I went a little higher last time, and I was like, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know. 60-year-old man here, uh, that ain't a good idea. Okay, so anyways, I'll, this is as far as I'll go. And when you try to have a little bit of the world, a little bit of God, you come to this place in your life where you have to make a choice. Now, here's the problem. You see the beauty and the benefits of walking toward the things of God. But here's what I want to say to you, and this is what the whole series has been about. You, you can't move toward the beauty and the benefits of the things of God and still have your foot in the world. As long as you keep your foot in the world, you're never really going to get the beauty and benefit of what it means to walk with God. And so you have to make a choice. You have to make a decision with your life. Which way are you going to go? I think a lot of Christians try really hard to live in the middle. They wouldn't say that, but that's how they end up living their life a little bit of God, and a little bit of the world, and they're just fine. The problem with that is over time, you get yourself to this kind of level, and the more and higher you go up, you're foist, fo foist, you're foist, I'll make a dog. <laughs> you're foist, <laughs> getting this high just makes me a little silly, okay, but uh, you're forced to make a choice, and which way are you going to go, and so it really comes down to what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to stay here? But you can't only stay here so long. Some are you going to have to make a choice. Am I going to go, am I going to go all in with the world? Then you've got to go all in with the world. Because you can't go any higher unless you go all in. Or am I going to make a choice for God? And am I going to go all in with God? I've got to make that kind of choice. And it's going to come down to it. Somewhere in your life you're going to have to make that choice. And I think that that's what happens in our Christian walk sometimes is uh, we want to go all in, but something keeps us over there, and we just can't accomplish it when we have our foot in the world. And so in those kind of choices, it's almost like we think God doesn't see us in the way that we're living, uh, almost like we're invisible to God, and he doesn't really take note. But you, you, what you end up doing is you end up walking kind of this tightrope in your life, and you sense it. Nobody maybe sees it, but you know it. And in walking this tightrope, you're kind of pulled in one direction or another, and God's trying to tell you, hey, this ain't going to end well for you. The higher you go, this ain't going to end well. And it's almost like God's trying to tell you, you know, this thing's going to come crashing down on you. Is that what you want? And, and you really have to decide, where am I going to go? Am I going to go all in or not? Because at some point, you are going to have to make a choice whether you're going to go all in for God or whether you're going to go all in for the world. And I, and I think sometimes the decisions are hard because, as you can see with the life of Christ, this one leads to life okay? But it feels like death. This one leads to death, but it feels like life. And some people who go this way, they never feel, they feel in this life, they're feeling alive by what they're doing, but it's leading to death. 
And that's why we as a Christian have to come to a place in our life where we've got to make these kind of choices. And really, this is what the whole series has been about. And when I see Jesus on the cross, this is what I'm so taken back by, is this incredible commitment to please the Father. And so you see that in this text. In this, I'm going to have to jump right in. I'm not going to use the old, uh, opening uh, stuff that I used in the last service because I wanted you to see that because I think it helps here. Before I get into the outline, though, I have to kind of set the context of this passage and so I want to do that for you because I do think it's a little difficult to really know what went on here. And it's difficult for me to fathom and really grasp. And so I'm going to do the best I can here. This is the consummation of everything Christ has been going toward, his death. He's been on the cross for three hours from 9 to 12 in the morning. Okay, it's now 12 p.m., verse 33, and the sun is at its zenith. They didn't keep measurement of time in minutes and hours. They did it by the sun. And so when they knew the sun was at its height, that's how I knew it was the midday. Okay. And the Bible says in verse 33 that the sun went dark. Now right there, that's huge. That's huge in itself. The sun went dark. I used to think it was an eclipse, like the moon came in front of the sun and it kind of went dark. That's not at all what happened. It says, uh, actually says in the Bible in verse 33, it, it fell over the whole land. You see the word land there? That doesn't translate well, but it's the whole earth. The whole earth went into darkness. And uh, that's important to note because this is no normal thing going on here. I mean, an eclipse is eerie in itself, but this is uh, a darkness that is very... Um, uh, complete over the entire existence of the universe. Now, what's going on here? This is what's going on. This is God the Father coming on the scene, and when he comes on the scene, the earth is void of light. The earth is void of light. But God's presence is there. Now, God's presence typically is in the light, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Okay, so he's my light as a child of God, who shall I fear? So typically when we think of God's presence, we usually see it demonstrated in light, and that's the way we like it. But God's presence is also in the darkness. And that's important to understand in your walk with God. Matter of fact, in Exodus 10 with the ninth plague, caused complete darkness over the earth, and it, the, the Bible said it was such a strong darkness it could be felt at the ninth plague. And uh, so it caused darkness there. Another time we see it in the Bible is the Ten Commandments, when the Ten Commandments were given. And I'm just going to read these two verses to you because I want you to remember them because they'll be helpful later. Okay, let me read them to you. Go ahead, bring the first one up. This comes from Exodus 19. So it happened on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was in, all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. This is very much like Calvary. The same kind of words and uh, understanding is used here. So let me have you understand that. There's fire within the darkness. But the fire cannot be seen because the smoke is so great. So all they saw was the darkness on top of the mountain. The fire would be hidden within the darkness. That's important to remember as you go forward, okay? So God's 
presence was manifested in both ways. If he was bringing delight, if he was blessing, if he was bringing joy, he would do it with light. If he was bringing judgment or plagues or the law or the day of the Lord, there's thick darkness that can be felt. So on Calvary, it is the darkness of God's presence. He brings judgment of hell upon Jesus from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. G. Campbell Morgan called it, the day hell came to Jerusalem. That's, that's a perfect way to put it. The day hell came to Jerusalem. For three hours, hell came to Golgotha and unleashed the full extent of fire and darkness on his son in punishment. That's, that's hard to fathom here, but the darkness is extinguished in the light of the flames or extinguishes the light of the flames, but the pain of the fire is not extinguished. Just the light of the fire is extinguished because there's so much darkness. Okay? So, God is the true power behind hell's punishing experience. He is behind the darkness of Calvary, and what He is doing is He unleashing hell on His Son. This is the cup of wrath that Jesus so did not want to experience. He said, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about 12 to 3 p.m. because at that moment, he is enduring hell, okay? And he's having all the fury of God. And that's why in the garden, when he was praying about this, he, he dripped great sweat drops of blood, which is hard to fathom, okay? But in three hours, in three hours, Jesus suffered an eternity of hell for over 20 billion people to date. If he were to return now, he would have died an eternity of hell for over 20 billion people. And he bore all eternal punishment in three hours of time. Now, you've got to reason this out, okay? Reason it out, and I hope you're thinking with me. If the sinner who loves his sin and will not turn from it and repent, he gets eternal hell as a punishment, and he can never pay the price for that. That's why he's in hell for eternity, all right? The question should be then, in our minds, how could Jesus in three hours receive full eternal wrath for all the world and those who would believe on him? How come one guy goes forever to eternity, but Jesus only goes for this three-hour period of experiencing the wrath of God? Well, I needed help on this, so I went to Lewis Ferry Schaefer's Systematic Theologies, and here's his answer, and I, I want you to hear it. Jesus could receive an infinite and eternal amount of wrath because... He is an infinite and eternal person. He is outside of time. And therefore, because he is outside of time, he has the capacity for everything. It is limitless and eternal. So he could take an eternal hell because he is an eternal person. And even though you know it in three hours of time, there is, an etern there is something outside of time where he experiences all the eternities of hell for over 20 billion people which is hard to fathom in and of itself. So understand this again. The darkness is not the absence of God. It is not the presence of Satan. It is God the Father in full judgment, in full vengeance, and in full fury against His Son. Against His Son. It's said this way. This is William Hendrickson and A.T. Robertson. I had to get other people to help me here. It is infinite wrath moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite Son. 
That's the best way I know how to say it, and that's, that's a great way to say it um, from their perspective, okay? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, could absorb all the tortures of the eternities of hell and do it in our time frame of three hours, even though he was outside of time when he endured it. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to have 20 billion people's sins hurled at you in smoke, darkness, and fire within the darkness. All that, all that suffering that would have gone on from his perspective, okay? So, that's when he was made. 12 to 3 p.m. is when he was made sin for us. He was made sin for us at that very moment. And everything was poured out. Now, here's the thing. After the three hours is over, he is still on the cross and the sky lightens up again. Okay, and the light returns. And the first thing he says there in verse 34, um, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I, I just want you to understand this even a little further, okay? Um, this is the only time in the New Testament he ever calls the Father God. He always called him Father. But anywhere you go in the New Testament, he only calls him God here. My God, my God. So the relationship with the Father has changed at this moment in time now that he's born in eternity of hell. And he repeats the name, my God, my God. Remember, I taught you that whenever you repeat a name, you're showing affection or emotion for someone. You're feeling something come out of you. Absalom, Absalom, did you have to die like that, my son? Abraham, Abraham, stop the knife, don't kill your son. See, there's a whole host of emotion in that phrase itself. And so, what's the point? The point is that God is there. Okay, God is there at that moment in time. But here's what's hard to understand. Jesus senses his judgment of hell is over after those three hours. And now what he wants is he wants comfort from the Father. He wants the Father to comfort him at that moment in time. All wrath is poured out. Darkness is gone. And Jesus knows God is there. But Jesus is now experiencing the full separation of the Father, which is beyond us how the Trinity could separate. But there is a separation from the Father after the fury of God's exploding judgment upon him. Jesus had hoped for comfort Comfort. Comfort after suffering an eternity of hells. He wanted the Father to comfort him at that moment in time. Isn't that what any kid wants after he's been spanked or after he's been judged or punishment has come upon him? Even the parent feels that. I want to give comfort to the child now because he's paid the punishment. But, but there is no comfort given to him at that moment in time. He had hoped for it, but he never got it. Well, you say, isn't God there? Yes, God is there after the punishment. He's there but he will not comfort his son. He will not comfort him. That's why he cries out, my God, my God. Now, I'm going to remind you, hell is the full fury of God's eternal punishment, and Jesus must bear it. So, understand this. You can understand this when a person goes to hell, maybe a little better than what you can understand for what Jesus experienced. If a person goes to hell of his own free will, he chooses to reject Christ, he will not receive him as Lord and Savior, he loves his sin, and he wants his sin. Okay? 
He will never find comfort from God in eternity when he's in hell. He will never find God. He will never find comfort from God in eternity in hell. So what, God, what Jesus is doing is he is giving us a preview of hell here when he cries out, my God, my God, don't you see what I've been through? Don't you want to comfort me? Don't you want to do something? What Jesus is telling us is this is what hell is like. It's punishment without comfort. It's punishment without comfort. It's punishment without compassion, without sympathy, without relief. That's hell. That's hell. Now understand, God's in hell right now. The Bible said, David said, if I make my bed in hell, you're there. That's interesting, isn't it? God is in hell even right now. God is there. But here's the deal. Even though he is there and a person may be in hell right now, which I would say, yes, there are people in hell right now. Even though he's there, he will not comfort. He will not relieve. They know he's there, but they cannot experience it. They only know it by fact. They only know it by a truth that he can dwell in hell but he will not make himself known or reveal himself in any way for anybody to experience an ounce of relief or comfort in hell. See, that's just, that's like beyond us in terms of trying to imagine that, okay? So having said that to you, you only experience his wrath, but he is there in the darkness. And Jesus is crying out for comfort and relief. And then the Bible says he cried out again with a loud voice, and what's that say in verse 37? Uttering a loud cry, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. Why does he utter with a loud cry the second time? The second time he utters with a loud cry because he wants you to know you didn't kill him. All the things they did to him to beat him and to crucify him and all the things that God did to him when he made it pay in eternity of hell, none of those things killed him. All the violence, everything he faced, none of that killed him. He died on his own terms. John 10, 18. No man takes my life. I lay my life down of myself as I've been given commandment by God. In other words, God has given me the authority when I die. So I go to the cross and I cry out one last time so that you know I'm in total control of my life. And then I give up the ghost. And his ghost, if you will, his very being, the spiritual being of Jesus, separates from his body and it goes up to the Father. Well, I shouldn't say it goes right up to the Father. The first place it goes is down into hell where he proclaims victory in Hades and paradise. And I'm not going to go down that path, but I just want you to understand um, how crucial this is that he, he died with full strength and he died of his own choice. Now, here's what, as I explain that to you, I don't know where your heart or your mind's going, but take all of that I explained to you and now I want you to bring it to the text and I want you to see the eyes of everybody. There are three sets of eyes here in this passage that I saw. I'm only going to be able to deal with two today, but there are three sets of eyes in the way they saw that event. For example, I want you to see the first one kind of outlined it this way. What effect did Christ's death have on the different sets of eyes at the cross? All right? The first one, the eyes of the mockers, it had no effect. This is so important to understand what a mocker does. They do not see Christ in his agony paying for their sin. 
what do they do? They cry out and say, come down from the cross, save yourself. They mock him. They make fun of him. That's what they do at the cross. Uh, the Bible calls them passerbyers. Uh, look at in verse 29, and those passing by were blaspheming him. In the same way, verse 31, the chief priests did it. They were passerbys. And then if you go down below, verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, look, he's calling for Elijah. They're not having sympathy there for him. They're getting him some uh, vinegar so they can put it on his mouth so he'll live a little longer, so they can mock him a little longer. That's what they're doing there. They're crying out and say, where's your Elijah? Come on, buddy. You said Elijah will show up. And all these people are doing is mocking them, mocking Jesus. And they're crying out, save yourself. Come down off the cross. If we see you come down off the cross and see it, we'll believe. See, we got to see some miracle in you, Jesus, before we're ever going to believe you. We're not going to believe in a dying Savior. This is so key. We're not going to believe in a dying Savior. We're going to mock a dying Savior. <laughs> By the way, thank God he didn't listen to him and pull himself off the cross and save himself, because then we'd have an eternity of hell to face. It's, it's unbelievable to think about this from other angles. Okay, so um, in essence, that's, that's their response. And I want you to see the eyes of the soldier, the eyes of the soldier. This is in verse 37. Jesus, uttering a loud cry, breathed his last. The veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Okay, this is where I wanted to camp. This, this is the one that catches me the most. The eyes of the soldier were belief. He said, truly or surely. The idea is, I believe this man was God's son. Now, what's so unique about that is the veil has just been torn. And the reason the veil has been torn is because Jesus Christ has died and he has paid an eternity of hells for everyone. And when he paid that price, God ripped the veil in the temple. It's an eight-inch thick. It was called a hand breadth. To go from your pinky to your thumb is about eight to ten inches, depending on the size of your hand. And that's how thick the veil was, woven cloth together. And God rips it apart from the Holy of Holies to the holy place and opens up the way and says, anyone who comes by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can walk through the veil. That's the idea. And the first living creature... The first living being to walk through was this thief. Or, excuse me, the thief. It was the centurion. The centurion was the first person. Hey, Manny, how you doing? Good to see you. One of our missionaries right here on the front row to India. There we go. Good to have you. And the whole look, a bunch of Indians right here, okay? So good. Good to have you folks with us today. All right, he threw me off. I looked down. I said, I know that guy from India. What's he doing here? All right, so that threw me off. But uh, now what was I talking about? This? You, you threw me off. All right. So he sees, he sees this event. He watches Jesus die and he believes. He sees him breathe his last and he believes. Now, I, I'm very much struck by this of all the things I've been struck by as I've studied this passage of Scripture. And... Um, the centurion saw the way Jesus died. Now, let me just say this to you by way of application, and then I hope you'll think it through for your life, because I, I, I had a difficult time really trying to make a good application for this, but let me say it this way. When you see someone suffering, 
it ought to change how you see them. When you see someone suffering, it ought to change the way you see them. The passerbys, that was the crowd going in and out of Jerusalem. They put those crucifixions right there on the main road into Jerusalem. So that there was people, hundreds of people walking in and out and looking over the crucifixion, wagging their head, mocking him, making fun of him, and, and, and just uh, literally making his life even more miserable on the cross. So they're passing by. They're like at a distance from Jesus, and they're saying, he's a fool. He's a fool, a total fool. He deserves to die. They're passing by. They never got close. Okay, but look at, look at where the centurions, who was standing right in front of him. He's right there. He's the closest one to Jesus. No, it says nowhere else in the Bible that anyone was standing right in front of him. Even Mary and John were a little further back from the cross, but not the centurion. Here's what I want to say to you, okay? Your position affects your perception. Your position affects your perception. The closer you get, the more it changes what you see. The closer you get, the more it changes what you see. The other soldiers, the other passerbyers, they mock Jesus because they're at a distance. But notice what happens to those who get close to the cross, who get close to Jesus. When, when, when you do, when you get close to Jesus, you see some things that change your perception about who he is. It's the same way when you get close to someone who's suffering. When you have to be near someone who's suffering, it changes your perception about that person. And I want to illustrate that in just a moment for you, but before I do, let me, let me just go on. One thing I notice here is the centurion sees three things. Three things. That's typical for a Baptist preacher to come up with three things, okay? It's just there in the text, and it's just natural for me to see that. I saw he saw three things here, okay? Number one, what changed this guy? The first thing he sees is his suffering. He sees his suffering. How he died. The Bible says this is what made him believe. The way he died. Okay, when he saw Jesus cry out, he sees him in absolute agony, but he also sees him in total control. What man cries out loudly at his death after he's been treated like this? And when he sees what Jesus is going through, the suffering he has gone through, it changes how he sees Jesus. Because when you are closely exposed to somebody struggling and they're suffering in agony and you see it, it changes how you see them. I mean, if you've got any Jesus in you, if you've got any Christ in you, if you've got any of God in you, the closer you get to people who suffer, the more you'll be able to see them for who they are, and you'll be able to change your perception about them. It doesn't matter who they are. 
You will change your perception about them. And that's, that's what I want to kind of drive home here because this is what it takes for us as children of God to see people for who they really are. Okay. Um, it's so easy to preach against gay people. It's so easy to do that in this pulpit. But I've had to ask myself, how many do I know? Because when I know their story, it seems like something happens inside of me. I was talking to a lesbian, and something occurred to me while I was talking to her in my office, by the way, And I think what she most wanted to know is, do I see her? And the closer you get to them, the more you know their story. Something happens in you. And I said to her, I said, uh, how can I help you? How can I help you? Not that I want her to stay in that lifestyle, but it's easier to preach against that lifestyle than it is to actually know her struggle. The centurion saw them suffer, saw him suffer. Let me take you back 70 years. I'll tell you this story, okay? Let me tell you this story. Maybe I got a little too close to home there for myself, but let me tell you this story. 1955. See if you don't relate to this, especially wherever you come from young black boy from Southside Chicago was sent down the South to visit his family in Money, Mississippi. His name, Emmett Till. He whistled at a white girl, and some of the men standing by began to hit and push him. Within three hours, they gouged out his eyes, They wrapped barbed wire around his neck. They took a gun to his head and shot him, and they threw him in the river. 1955. His mutilated body was sent back to Chicago. Mamie Till Mobley, his mother, made a decision that changed the dynamics of race in America. forever. I'm using something 70 years old. She saw her mutilated son, 14 years of age, and she told the morticians, don't clean him up. Don't put makeup on him. Don't close the casket. Don't fix his wounds. I'm going to have an open casket funeral. I want the world to see what they did to my boy. 10,000 people came to Roberts Memorial Church of God in Christ in South Chicago to see that pain. The newspapers and the magazines published it, and America saw up close the horrid nature of a lynching. The pain and the suffering. Let me just tell you our history. 
Thus began the civil rights movement. Some people say it started with Rosa Parks on the bus in Mississippi, but it didn't. Because they asked her after she did that, said, what were you thinking about when you stayed in that seat? And she said, I was thinking about Emmett Till. When the pain was revealed, I just want you to understand this, the conscience of America was pricked. See, when, when, when we see the pain and we see the suffering, it does something to us. It does something to us. You can't witness someone's suffering and not want to do something. And unless you're a passerby, if you're a passerby, you can get by with all kinds of seeing of stuff. If you're a passerby, it's easy to judge. It's easy to demonize people. It's easy to label them when you stand afar off. But when you get close and see someone in pain, it comes home to you. This is what I think happened to this soldier. Let me go on, okay? Not only did he see his suffering, but I want you to see the second thing here. He sees the humanity of Jesus. He said, this man, this man. See, he was taught as a Roman that Jews are not human. That's what he was taught. Jews are not human, therefore you dehumanize Jews. You put them on crosses. So, you don't see them as people, you see them as a problem. That's why you see people. That's how you do it, politicize it. You make people a problem and property. And so the Romans took away their rights and they killed thousands of these Jews because they're not people. They dehumanized them. That's how you can shove people in concentration camps and get away with it for some time. Because they're not human. They're not human. But the centurion gets close enough and he recognizes Jesus is a man. See, this is what you want to see here. He's, he's like me. He's like me. Because the closer you get, the more you see them for who they are. And he says, this is a man like me. He's just like me. We have more in common than we do in our differences. And when you draw close and see their humanity, you realize they are more like you. I learned that at a, not too long ago, met a Venezuelan lady. I didn't know this, but 7.2 people have left Venezuela. 7.2 million people have left Venezuela so now I want to bring it into the current. Left Venezuela in the last five years. 7.2 million people because of the horrible evil of a dictator, Manduras. They've left. And they've tried to go anywhere they could. And, and you know they're coming here. They're now like the second most group of people trying to get into the United States. I was talking with her and she said that she... The word is... Shavata, I, I hope I'm saying that right. She had to get somebody to get her out of the country, to sneak out of the country. And she left her kid and she left her mom. And so she came over to this country as an immigrant. And as an immigrant, you can't get a normal job. You have to do side jobs. And so she earned enough money and now she went back. She got a Shavata hired. 
went back into the country of Venezuela, got her child, got her mom, and they snuck them out, brought them over. Now, politically, I would say politically, from a distance, if I'm a, if I'm a guy looking from the distance, I would say you, you, you have to get, you, you, you can't be an illegal alien, you have to get a citizenship to come into our country. I, I think that's politically the right thing, but I'm just saying now that I heard her story, I don't know what I would do with that. I, I don't even think I could figure out the problem of immigrants in our country when you see these stories, because what do they want? They want the same thing you want. You can't get it in a dictatorship where they're killing you. I don't know the answer to that, but I know she just wants to live in peace. Raise her children and be safe. You can't see that unless you draw close. You just, when you keep it out here, it's politics. When you get it down to real people, it's here. When you draw close, you see that. You see the suffering. You see their humanness. It's, it's so incredible how that happens even to me. All right, and number three, I want you to see the third thing he saw. He saw not only his suffering, he saw his humanity, but he saw his divinity. He said, truly this man was God's son. I believe this man is the son of God. He drew close to him, and when he drew close to him, he said, he's God. I sense God. You can only do that as you draw close, as you draw close. And he acknowledges the suffering this man has gone through and saw what he dealt with on the cross, and he probably recognized at some point, if he's going to come to believe that, he had to recognize that somehow, as the Son of God, he was suffering at some level for him. This is the model of salvation, that you can't come to the cross and come to Jesus and say, well, fix this in my life or take care of this. Or, you haven't done anything for me, God, and you're a passerby. You have to come to the cross and you have to draw close to Jesus and see why he's there in agony. And you have to understand that agony is for you, that he's taking your place and he's bearing your sin in eternity of hell. And in doing that, you see he's a man. He's a man doing this for you. And yet he's God. He's God. And what's so amazing about the book of Mark that I've learned is this is the first man in the book of Mark who actually says he's the son of God. His disciples don't say it. The Jews don't say it. Nobody says it. But a Roman Gentile says it. It's incredible to me because God told him right at the beginning of the book, this is my beloved son. He is the son of God. He cried that out and opened the heavens to tell the people that. The demons knew. The demons would say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. We know it. So there was testimony from hell, or excuse me, there's testimony from heaven, there's testimony from hell, and now you got testimony from the earth, from a Gentile who says, I see. This man is the Son of God. That's the model of salvation. That's what brings people to Christ is when they come and they get close to that suffering and they see it. And they can experience it and they can say, that's, that's for me. And then they see he's both human, yet he is the Son of God. It's a beautiful model for all of us. And it's a beautiful example for us. 
to draw close. We draw close to our Savior. And then through life, whatever God does with you or brings you to, He will draw you close to people like that. And you'll see the suffering. I don't know all the answers, that's for sure. But I know it's affected me. Let's pray. I just pray in this moment of time that you would know how to draw close to Christ's suffering because that's where it starts. You draw close to the suffering and you understand why he died. He died for you. He took an eternity of suffering for you as a man just like you, just like you, but yet he was the son of God. This is where a walk with God starts. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and said, Jesus, save me, that'll stir in you, that'll stir in you. It'll be so strong, you won't pass by. You won't ignore it. You won't put it off. You'll just say, Jesus, save me. And if you've never done that, that's where a walk with God starts. And then if you have done that, if you've got Christ in you, if you've got God in you, Jesus in you. You will draw close. You'll draw close to people. And it'll change you as you see their suffering. And I pray we truly are a people like that. We know how to draw close to others. Whatever era you come from, whatever issue we're facing in politics today, be a people that draw close. Father, I lift up this time now and I lay it at your feet, your work to be done in the lives of those that you're speaking to right now. And I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team is going to lead us in this song. If you have something on your heart you'd want to bring to the altar, the altar, of course, is open and I'd invite you to come. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I certainly didn't want to guilt you into it today and have you raise your hand real quick. But if you need to settle that, I'm going to be up here up front. If it's strong enough in you, you come to me. And I'll lead you to Christ. But I want that to be something that ticks in you. Let God speak to your heart. Let's sing.